passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. I'm Derek Riley. I'm with Charlie Smith. And welcome to Dirty Water, an hour of swinging discourse where opinion rains down in fast, vicious swoops and where facts are rarely yanked out of our kimonos. Today's guest on Dirty Water was hatched in San Clemente in February 1972, exactly one week after Kelly Slater, a man who would haunt our guests competitively from 1985 until his retirement from the tour in 2005. Our guest is described by the Encyclopedia of Surfing as a loner and a malcontent, and the least huggable pro of all. He's one of the first surfers on tour to regularly bring airs in a heats. He scored the highest per total in a heat, 30 points via three tens on three waves, and he's an in-demand coach with two shredder kids. He abhors mediocrity in anything, and his face has a fragile look, as if it might have been broken and stuck together again, or like a gun no one knows is loaded. Our guest, of course, is Mr. Shane Beshin. Why is yeah. it so cold in Hawaii? I'm just in the AC. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Your, face, your face is so smooth. Have you been at the Botox salon? No, I shave. <laughs> you look, um, you look so, you got such a smooth face. That's amazing for a man who um, sits in the sun in Hawaii all day. Well, sunscreen. <laughs> so whereabouts in Hawaii do you live? I live right across from Rocky Point on North Shore. Wow. So yeah. your two boys grew up across the road from Rocky Point, Coda and Noah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Do you still have a joint yeah. in San Clemente? No, no, I haven't had a place there for since I was a kid. So how long have you lived in on the North Shore for? Uh, about 25 years. Holy shit. So you're local. You're Hawaiian, officially, at this point. <laughs> I would never claim that, but <laughs> I've been around a while and, and see a lot of friendly faces, so it's cool. <laughs> did you, did you, either of you see the New York, uh, I think it was the, what, New Yorker article about, if you want to not be racist, move to Hawaii? No. <laughs> yeah, it's epic. I think Why? it's New Yorker. What's the, uh, what's the angle? If you're a white person and you want to learn not to be racist, to Hawaii where you just feel it every day all the time and really learn practically how not to be racist anymore. Oh, because you're Hallie, Hallie scumbag. Precisely. Precisely. Like where, yeah, it just smacks you in the face all the time. And if you ever claim anything, then yeah, you should pack your bags. Yeah. No, I haven't seen that article, but I have to say it's definitely a lot mellower here now than when I was a kid. So, and probably part of that is that I'm, old you know i'm almost 50 years old so uh yeah it's just a lot of the older guys that were gnarly back in the day don't really surf anymore you know some have passed and you know all all kinds of things happen in life that people are from the water so 
nowadays, uh, you know, I tend to be one of the older guys in the lineup. <laughs> what was it like being a young white man living on the North Shore in, in 1995 or something? Yeah, it was, um, you know, I moved here, you know, like 94 or something. And then, uh, but before that, I'd been coming here since I was like 10 years old, 11 years old. You know, I just went and stayed with Ross Williams through like an NSSA exchange thing. Like he stayed at my house and I stayed at his house. I think I was about 12. That was the first time. And then, uh, so at that time it was even gnarlier than when I moved here, you know, when I was 12, like, and 13 like 12 to 17 that was probably like the heaviest i ever felt hawaii you know in my life that's when like dane kalo i was still very prominent in the lineup and johnny boy and you know surat was surfing every day and rockies was you know a gnarly place to surf back then so um like in, in my lifetime for me that that 12 to 17 18 year old range was um definitely felt like the like the heaviest vibes over here what sort of things did you see on a daily basis um yeah you see guys get you know beat up and sent in you know and just it wasn't so much that you would see it all the time i like i saw a few things and i had you know a couple random things happen to myself that weren't like super gnarly but like could have been gnarly and and it's just more the energy, you know, like the, you felt the energy of it, like you're way more on your toes, you know, like it was, um, you know, there was a tipping point probably, I would say almost 10 years ago where uh, it just seemed like people started calling the cops more, you know, like with fights and stuff like that, like the law was getting more involved and stuff like that. So it kind of, I don't know. It just feels like I just see a lot less of it now in the water, you know, and it's just, um, sorry about that. Someone's calling uh, it. City Rock. Yeah, no, it just seems like just evolution, you know, like a lot of the local guys aren't, you know, they're, I guess probably because I've been here for a long time too, and I've actually seen a lot of the gnarly guys. Yeah, it just seems mellow now. Like there's still that, you know, kind of totem pole energy in the lineup. But like I said, like a lot of the, the, the gnarly guys nowadays, like I've known since, you know, they were little kids, like probably before they even surfed, you know, so it's just, do you, it's just a different do you think that was Do you think that was a romantic time in North Shore I mean, those years when it was just honestly love the jungle more, or do you think, do you think, okay, that, that was a time that needed to evolve and change? I think, uh, yeah, you know, like there's pros and cons for it, you know, like, they're definitely less pros for back then, you know, like it was heavy, you know, and even like for sure, probably like the, you know, 20 years, 30 years before I started coming here was real heavy, you know, like that, those times, like when, you know, the bull and, you know, Dora and those guys were coming here back in the day, it was probably real gnarly, you know, and just super raw out here and developed and, now it's just, you know, there's such an influx of people from all races here that it's just, um, I think for me, the way I see it is, it's really cool now because that hierarchy and that kind of, you know, respect for the locals still remains, 
but the need for violence is not there as much, you know, like it's more of just like a sounding, you know, like, you know, maybe someone gets scolded and, you know, that's about it, you know, whereas before they get punched, you know, so um, I think there's an understanding that, and a lot of these guys have families, you know, they have families, sponsors, you know, like there's all this, there's all these other action, you know, every action requires another action. And, you know, nowadays there's, there's so many actions that can happen from just one thing, you know? So I think that uh, awareness is, is pretty clear these days, you know, and people just look at it as, you know, it's not worth losing all this to gain this one little thing. They have it in the first place, you know? So uh, that's kind of how it feels for me. It's funny because in the early, um, it's, it's quite recent that, um, you know, the, the overt localism has um, calmed down because even in the, uh, you know, to the first part of the 2000s, you had the Wolfpack policing pipeline and you could, um, you could sit a pipeline and watch quite a few wrestles. But, that, but the, the North Shore seems to be a lot more family-friendly place now. Yeah, totally. And like, you know, like back then when the Wolf, like that was probably the last time the, the North Shore was gnarly, you know, it was like the whole Wolfpack. And um, that, you know, and those were just a lot of the guys that were just, you know, just growing up and flexing and, you know, showing their power on the North Shore. But now a lot of those guys all have families too, you know, and, and they're raising kids, daughters, sons, you know, they're, they're, you see them at school, you know, like it's just kids change you, you know, like all of a sudden you, you, you know, look at yourself more clearly and, um, you know, you want to teach your children good things and stuff. So, um, yeah, you know, it's just evolution. And I think, you know, like I said, it's at a really cool place right now where you still feel that sense of, you know, hierarchy and respect in the lineup, but um, just not as much violence. What about the hierarchy now? You know, if you had a pipeline, what's the, who are the top five, um, top five guys or girls? Oh, I don't know. Well, Derek's number one. <laughs> so that, let's, let's just get that straight. You Derek mean, goes, home, not Riley, yeah. then, yeah. What's that? <laughs> Derek's number one for sure. He's the oldest Jedi out there still charging, you know. And if Mike's out there, he's right there as well, you know. And then and then after that, you know, you have the guys that are still surfing out there a lot. And then you have the next generation, you know, like Makua is still out there and Kamale and, you know, like but then you have that, that whole next gen like Koa Rothman and Nate and Eli, John, you know, like you have that whole crew that's really pushing it. And then below, below them, you have Baron and Noah and Lakana. And, you know, it's just actually really cool out there sometimes. Like you'll just see like each generation. And I've been talked to Koa Rothman about it, you know, because like they used to be over here like having Easter egg hunts, birthday parties and shit, you know, so like to watch all these kids grow into men and just be so gnarly. Um, it's cool. Cause like he was telling me, he's like, wow, I can't even know it's charging, you know? And I'm like, no, it's like, no, no, he's old enough to actually watch kids grow up, you know? And, and then no one's going to see kids grow up and do it. So, um, but yeah, you know, I'd say, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot more guys than I mentioned too, you know, the, it's just it just be kind it just kind of becomes there's a hierarchy but then amongst that hierarchy it just becomes beginning a pipeline you know like once it even if it's not that big it's still like a game of inches you know and 
if someone's just right there and you're just over and under, like, you know, it's just positioning kind of dictates priority out there sometimes, just the way the waves come in so fast and wedgy. If you're not right in the spot, then you're not, you don't really got it. <laughs> Does the, how many days are you out at, oh, sorry, Derek. No, you good, Jess. I'm, I'm going to paddle on you. I was, I was inside and under you on that set. Uh, <laughs> how often do you surf pipe? Um, well, out the there every good swell? No, I mean, the last few years I've been like kind of preoccupied with some different stuff, so I haven't really been surfing it on the big days. I'm just kind of for, ah, just more focused on the backdoor days. You know? uh, but this year I went out for the first time in a while and just got to watch it. And it's, I mean, just being out there watching is just incredible, you know, like just watching those waves come in. So, um, yeah, I'll plan, I'm, I'm planning on getting back out there more consistently, but I've been just, yeah, just sidetracked on different projects and kind of life outside pro server for the last few years. So <laughs> I haven't been kind of focused in that direction. So, so you obviously you um, didn't grow up on the North shore and you know, you're from San Clemente. What was San Clemente like? So you were born in 72. So you went through that period and there was Christian Fletcher and, uh, and Archie and then Potts came to town. What was San Clemente like in the 80s and late 70s? San Clemente was insane. You know, it was, uh, it was an incredible, just little town, just the vibe and energy of it. And, and just like you said, like all those guys you mentioned and even more, you know, like the McNulty's and the O'Connell's and there's just, San Clemente was kind of similar to the North Shore in a way where there's so much talent in like a small area, you know, and, and, and sure, like a lot of gnarly guys came up and made names for themselves in the surf industry. And, and there was just as many guys that were probably just as talented that didn't, you know, just, just for whatever reason. But uh, it was just a crazy little talent pool and uh yeah it just for me when i was a kid i'd run down the t street from house and yeah there'd be like hogan snips dino archie you know they'd all be out there every day you know like like the first airs i saw in real life was archie you know like straight up so it's just it was just such a thing to come down and and just be amongst that you know and and on the flip side, you know, it was equally tough to make a name for yourself because the guys were so iconic and famous, you know, like the Fletchers and Archie, you know, like it was, you had to like, it was kind of like a counterbalance, you know, in that sense, because those guys were so famous in the surf world. And back then the surf world was so controlled by that one magazine or those two magazines every month you know it was just a totally different deal now so to actually you know come up and make a name for yourself was tough coming from San Clemente <laughs> but at the same time it was really cool because you're just constantly surrounded by all these incredible surfers and literally just got to see them all surf all the time and then at a certain point um Potter started coming and hanging out with uh, Jim Hogan. And then that was like the next like real big step for San Clemente. It was Potter coming to town and just ripping and really like kind of 
shed light on everyone's eyes. <laughs> you describe that energy because when he came, it was such a big deal because you know it influenced everybody, huh? Oh yeah, I mean, I'd be at school and and then you'd, you'd like on the playground, you'd you know, at lunch or whatever, you'd, you'd hear a rumor like, oh, I heard I heard Potter's here or something, you know, and literally just be like, like run down to the beach after school, like hoping he's in the water, you know, because like. The first time I ever saw him surf, I didn't know who he was at all. He was just flying at me on his green and yellow board, like that iconic board he used to ride, and just whipped like a super fast, like backside 360 in front of me. And back then, that was like an air 360 now. <laughs> so um, me and my friend just looked at each other and we were just like, fuck, who, what the, who the hell is that guy? You know? And, um, yeah, it was, ended up being Potter, and he ended up staying in San Clemente a bunch, and that was just like a full ignition switch for San Clemente, because it just got everyone so fired up and psyched to surf and get better. You had, was, did your family have connection to Hawaii at all, or were you just, uh, did you just have the hunger for it yourself? I mean, moving from San Clemente to Hawaii and then fully retransplanting, or I guess, uh, retransplanting transplanting and then yeah. raising your family there i mean that's home now right yeah totally like you don't think of san clemente i mean san clemente is your childhood but north shore is home yeah um actually did, my, did, my, uh, uncle, my uncle lived did, on the south shore when i was young and uh my parents almost moved to hawaii like like i first time i ever came to hawaii i was like four years old and I have like vague memories of them looking at properties in Pupake and stuff. They almost moved here. And back then, the, the, you know, the racism towards Howleys and stuff was real gnarly at the schools. And they basically opted out of it because of that. They didn't, you know, they just, whatever. They, they like San Clemente too. So they just decided to stick with San Clemente. But uh, it's interesting because my parents almost moved here when I was young. And then... And then I did, and then like about 10 years ago, my parents moved back to Kauai. Not back, but they moved to Kauai from San Clemente. So they always had this thing over here that they loved it too. And for me, like just early memories of coming here. And um, yeah, at a certain point as I you know got on the tour and stuff, I just, it just, it was a natural progression of like staying for the triple crown and then staying for, you know, a couple of weeks after and then a month and then like, Oh, find a place to rent and ship my car over. <laughs> so you, um, so you, so you live in the North shore and, and so many Americans, you know, effectively retire, you know, not necessarily the North shore to Hawaii, like saying your parents are Kauai. It's, it's a remarkable gift. America gives the citizens the fact that you can move without having to emigrate or anything to this, this incredible um, tropical paradise. But what are the downsides of living in uh, Hawaii? Not for me, man. Like, honestly, like my whole career, like the one thing that I think this the coolest thing about getting to be a, pro, a professional surfer was the fact that I moved here and both my sons got to be born and raised here. Because just like the healthiness and fun they had through their childhood was so cool. Like they went to school at Sunset Beach Elementary. They just rode their bike down the street. Like they ran across the street and body surfed and boogie boarded and surfed and, you know, perfect blue crystal water and had like such good groups of friends. And like 
it's just like yeah they just had the coolest childhood you know like i know like when they get older and they look back on their childhood they'll just be like fuck we killed it <laughs> you know so yeah for me there's you know there's not too many downfalls really you know like I was telling someone the other day, like I've lived here 25 years and I'll still paddle out and just be like amazed at, you know, how pretty it is, you know, like it's like crystal clear water and yeah, just, just beautiful. Like you said, tropical paradise. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. It's um, summertime in Hawaii and it was like a ski suit on ski jacket. Yeah. <laughs> just a track jacket. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so back to, so back to San Clemente in the, uh, in the eighties. Um, it's so, it was so different then to what it is now with Kolohe and Griffin and, and those sort of kids when you had Archie and, and Potts and Christian Fletcher. What was it like after dark in San Clemente in the 80s? Um, well, I'm sure it was gnarly, but for me when I was a kid, I wasn't, you know, I was more at home and stuff. So I didn't really, I was in like a different age bracket than like Christian and Archie and those guys. They were old enough to be like partying with Potts. I was old enough to just look like idolize him, you know? So it was just, I was kind of like in a different bracket in that sense. So um, I'm sure a lot of parties went down and they had a lot you must of have heard about it. it must've been the stuff of legend amongst the school yeah, children. I mean, I, I got to party with pots later when I was on tour and stuff, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And those days, like I was, you know, just going surfing and going home. So, but I'm sure they had, some good times. <laughs> did they, they, did they seem larger than life cruising around town? Cause I remember, I remember Potts in the nineties. He seemed like a superhero with his long hair and his big muscles and shit and um, kind of angry demeanor. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Potts had that thing, you know, like you said, like he was freaking, but he was also really cool though too. You know, he was like, he had that, you know, like gnarliness about him, which I think, you know, everyone from San Clemente liked because it was already a little edgy in there anyways. But, you know, like he would talk to everyone and, you know, like for how famous he was, he was super like cool and down to earth too, you know, like, I mean, I was just a little shit from and he'd, he'd like talk to me in the lineup. I'd grab his board if he lost it or something, you know, if I was piling out and he lost his board, I'd grab it and give it to him. <laughs> in 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 those days <clears throat> with the surf industry like sort of i don't know it still seemed like the the future was bright uh now it seems like the future maybe is not so bright uh how does that feel for your kids i mean for you raising kids who are surfers do you th are you hopeful about are they having the same experience that you had or is it is it a bleak dystopian future where they're going to surf for their soup and that's basically it um surfing industry is definitely they just they made some really critical mistakes that they can't undo you know so i think it's just it's gonna have to take its path and and uh you know these three companies that own the whole industry or whatever it is um they're going to do what they're going to do. And I think there's just going to be a rebirth, you know, like, um, like even myself, like I went through the phase of companies making the same stuff, you know, like when I first turned pro, I rode for O'Neill, Quicksilver and Rusty. 
you know, and Rusty made surfboards, O'Neill made wetsuits, and Quicksilver made clothes, you know, so there's a downturn in that transition in the early 90s as well, you know, where these companies started morphing together and becoming one, and, you know, like, everything got kind of disturbed for a while, and I feel like that's what it is now, you know, like, man, it just... If the companies wouldn't have sold out, the surf industry would be so strong right now. And that's that's a real bummer. And I'm sure some of the main owners that sold their companies are looking at it going, wow, you know, I made hundreds of millions and I just screwed the whole industry. Like maybe they would reverse their decisions, you know, looking at what's happened because if they would have been content with their, you know, $100 million a year at, you know, earnings, like everyone would be killing it right now. They'd be cash positive and, you know, if they wouldn't have bought fucking ski companies and just all this stupid stuff, like, and then sold to hedge funds, hedge, hedge fund firms that really have no interest in surfing at all other than trying to be cool or trying to penetrate another market that they can make money on. Um, I think the surf industry would be crazy strong right now because they would have kept it niche, which made it cool in the first place. And to me, I, I just, it was just interesting that they, they didn't understand that. Like, it's like, it's not meant for the mouse. That's why the masses want it. As soon as you give it to the masses, they don't want it anymore, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, look at Stussy, you know, 50 million a year for 20 years. Like just, it's, the formula is there for them to follow and and they got greedy you know and went public and made hundreds of millions and now it's you know like it's gnarly right now yeah so back to the main renew question yeah you know like with noah you know he's still riding Faruka, and you know everyone took deductions because now covid gave <laughs> gave those companies the perfect excuse to you know cut everything and one they want really so it's crazy how uh, force majeure nobody knew force majeure i think as a word or a phrase until yeah, COVID. Just, just right there, force majeure. You know, <laughs> line line 55 page 42 <laughs> you know like whatever it is just sitting right there like oh bingo <laughs> break out the samurai sword <laughs> So you were speaking about the critical mistakes the industry made in the 90s. So obviously becoming public companies was, um, was a big one. And, and perhaps the, the move to do 100% sponsorships, you know, with Kelly originally when he was 100% Quicksilver, so they had to make wetsuits and everything. What other mistakes do you think that the industry made that um, kind of fucked it now? Well, the distribution, you know, like that. But I think that was because of, of the people that bought it, you know, like when Oak Tree buys, you know, Quicksilver, whatever it is, Billabong, whoever they own, um, they're just looking at distribution numbers, you know? So they think, oh yeah, let's sell to Costco. They're gonna buy, you know, 100,000 units. And but that that's, you know, the, the demise, that was, that was the greatest demise, I think, you know, is taking, taking the coolness out of surf shops and uh, really, putting them in a tough position to survive. You know, when kids can buy the same thing for 15 bucks and it's 45, you know, it just becomes simple math. And um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, the, the hedge fund 
guys like push the companies in that direction though. So I think just that one decision was a turn into an avalanche of things that, you know, got us to where we are right now. So um, just let's, let's talk about you on the tour. So you were there for so many uh, generational transitions. There was, you know, the Potsker crew to, to you and Kelly and Dorian and Herring and, and so on. And then on and on and on and on. Can you describe its generational transition? Because I remember, and back to Potts too, like he, he really gave it to Kelly, but Kelly gave it back to him. That must have been amazing to watch firsthand, huh? Yeah, I think... Um... I actually think our generation was probably the biggest uh, shift in the tour because like Elkerton and Potts and all those guys, like they probably looked up to Dane and Hans Hiedemann and Michael Hose and stuff, but it seemed closer, you know, and they surfed the, the way they surfed was different, but not so different, you know? And then when our generation came in, it became this super like power progressive, you know? And um, <laughs> I remember it was just like this whole, you know, Elkerton is just so over the progression and, you know, tricks are for kids and you know, just all this stuff. So um, I think our generation really like came in with something different, you know? And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember one of my first years on tour, I had a heat, a man on, on heat with Shane Haran, you know, and, and before POTS, I watched Shane in person win the OP Pro, you know, like with the backside 360 in the pier. And, you know, at that time, that was, that was as dope as it gets, you know, and, and uh, I remember like being so stoked on him because like, that was a big thing back then, even like, even back then, like, degree of difficulty to length of ride was an issue. Like Sean was doing like S turns to the beach in the white water, you know, all the way. And Shane would do one big move and kick out, you know, and he ended up winning, you know, the OP pro that year. And I remember just being a kid thinking, you know, like with already aspirations and wanting to be pro just thinking like, that's, that's how I want to do it. You know, like I want to be like S turning to the beach, you know. I wanted, that was that was such a thing back then, wasn't it? Length of ride, so someone could ride away for 100 meters, and like you're saying, Sean, not do one actual turn, but do 300 S turns, and and people would get a six. Yeah, totally. And uh, so, like when we came in, you know, like it was like really like the introduction of airs and tail slides and blow tails and all this new stuff that these guys hadn't learned. You know what I mean? Like we learned it from pots but pots didn't get gnarly enough at it to want to do it in the contest all the time you know like it's just evolution you know like now the kid now you know like air 360s are you see it all day long you know and it's uh it's just what you grow up on you know so like do you remember pots, your first tail slide yeah it was backside it was a backside that was like the first i remember seeing actually i remember seeing slater at lowers and and i think we were 14 or something 15 and i t and we were like talking you know and we we're much friendlier then you know like and we we're i was like I'm, I'm working on this i'm working on some moves and he was like oh i am too <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was like the backside kind of blow tail you know and then the backside reverse you know that was kind of like the first kind of release turns you know and then once that 
then it went to Friendside and then Ayers and all that, you know, so, um, but yeah, you know, like I remember going down the, you know, like the little local beach break where no one surfed because it was so bad and I would just go fall for an hour or two and trying to do backside blowtails. What's it like, what's it like being at the, um, you know, I guess a pioneer of, of new maneuvers where no one's really done them before and it hasn't really entered the public consciousness and you have to determine techniques to do these things. So can you describe that feeling? Can you, can you remember going, okay, cool, I have to unwind my back foot, I have to twist my body. Was it that technical? Or were you just such a kid, you just went, oh, fuck it. Just yeah, and honestly, like for me, uh, like how I practiced the, the most was on the driveways on my skateboard. Like I really learned about leverage on the little like slope driveway into the street, you know, like, so I'd come up and it was just like this, just a little slant, you know, that you could come up and have a top right here that you could kind of get a disaster on. And then you had the curb, you know? So for me, I learned a lot about leverage skating on driveway, you know, just like power sliding, like leaning onto the front foot, releasing the back foot, and then, you know, finding that center well, as the tail spins around, you know, and, and then just literally I would go and skate in the driveway right next door to my house for half hour or so and then go surf. And that's, that was kind of, that was my. And what sort know. of hours are you putting in the water? So somebody is 17 or something at this stage? Yeah, at that stage, you know, like I was probably 14, 15, 16. Surfing a lot, you know, probably six hours a day. Wow. And what about your first air? Can you remember the first time you had a proper air and you landed and rode out? Did you fucking, did you just claim uh, to the beach? I can't really say. It was pretty young though. I love that you remember your first tail slide, but not your first air. That's pretty epic. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> well, airs are almost a, a little easier in a way that you're just popping off the lip. The tail slide, you're like under your board more than because um, back then there was no air 360s, you know, it was just a straight air, you know. So I think I did my first straight air before I did my first tail slide. So, yeah, that might be a funny fact. I might have done an air before a tail slide. <laughs> but it had been around for, you know, almost 10 years before tail slides. And what about the influence of Paul Roach? Because I remember Paul Roach had a big influence on um, Machado and the Seaside guys with, with uh, tail throws. Did that reach San Clemente? Paul Roach? Yeah, you know, the bodyboarder, the drop knee guy? Um, no, we had Keith Sasaki in San Clemente. <laughs> was Keith Sasaki in San Clemente, was he? Yeah, he spent a lot of time there. Is he still around? Yeah, I actually seen him. He's over here. I think he sells real estate or something here in Hawaii. Wow. Real estate is where everyone goes, huh? After, after yeah. real estate or all the yeah. ground. <laughs> so let's 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 talk about the tour tour some more. Is you on the tour for what? Fifteen seasons? Yeah, I f I forget, man. It was ninety three to like two thousand and one, and then I got knocked off. I got knocked off tour the year the nine eleven hit. So that was like a five event tour that year, and I I did poorly in the first couple events, and there was only two left, and. Um, yeah, I just didn't get the results to qualify that year. And then I was off for two years and then back on for another couple of years. And at that point, I was kind of losing interest. 
So you got the you got the shits of the tour because he went from title contender to I don't know twenty twenty fourth or something, then fortieth really quickly. What uh, what made you lose interest? Um, I think the year I went for the title, it, it took a lot out of me. It really just, yeah, it was it was tough. The flurry events through like the U.S. Open Slater interference to. I lost like by point one to Damien Hardman and Hossiger and I actually did like a really good air on a wave that I needed to score at the end of the heat and and got underscored by like point one. That like really hurt. I can't wait to like get that footage someday. I'm gonna do a document like a life story documentary someday and I can't wait to like go back and try to get all the footage from all these heats. <laughs> Especially with progression. So um important now you know like i'm excited to go back and, and see all these heats but yeah then there was that and then in via ritz um the, the very next event i lost to dean randazzo by point one and it was at a secondary bank like a couple hundred yards down the beach from the main contest and uh pete frieden was judging my heat he was like a he's a photographer <laughs> And he was judging my heat for the world title. And I lost a close heat there too. And yeah, I just felt uh, disheartened. Yeah, it just took a lot out of me. And you, you mentioned the um, the famous US Open heat with Kelly when he, he did probably the greatest um, uh, got you on the interference and one of the most amazing pieces of um, tactical workings ever in a uh, surfing contest. And we'll put the uh, we'll put the vision up on uh, in the story pane when we uh, when we have this. But it's amazing. So you're paddling for a wave, and Kelly, you can't see him. He's paddling around you out the back, and as you take off, you have no idea that he's there, and he takes off behind you. It's a magnificent. You must have appreciated the skill involved in that. Not at the time. <laughs> at the time, I didn't appreciate it at all. Yeah, but yeah, it was definitely a skilled move. <laughs> That's the. I learned that one from like Rich Rudolph and Charlie Kuhn at Sebastian Inlet or something. <laughs> you must have felt like patting on the back going, oh, mate, that was so fucking good. You really got me there, son. Yeah. No, it was crazy. I was looking out. I was going into a right off the pier, and I was looking at him when I was palling into the wave. So for him to get past me around and actually catch it and stand up, yeah, that was definitely impressive. <laughs> and it's amazing to see you on the waves. Kelly's behind you, and you go, ah, and then a little air or something at the end and you go yes i got it and everyone's going oh no oh fucking hell yeah but then but then um yeah, about, that's a good one. aside from that there was the other us open i'm not sure if it was two years before or two years after where kelly needed a score right on the buzzer and he did a little air at the end the crowd went mad but then you won it and um and matt warshaw has an encyclopedia of surfing we did an interview about you and um, he described, he was there, he describes the moment as you shooting lasers out of your eyes, little tiny smile staring us down, a well-deserved fuck you to the whole crowd. It was the most gangster move I've ever seen in the contest. <laughs> what was that again? What move was that? So in the, um, I'm not sure it was 94 or 96, but it was um, two years either before. Yeah, after. 94 is the year I won. Yeah, so no, it must be 94. 96 is the interference, right? Yeah. Yeah, so 94 is the year you won. But Kelly needed a score right on the buzzer, and he yeah uh, he got a he got like a little head dip in an air, and got like a nine something, and he needed almost the perfect ten. 
and he didn't just didn't get the tan and then yeah he needed like a five or six back then and 94 was top three waves so he still needed a score and i had priority and he got interference on the last wave because i mean it was just me going on the wave and you know just making sure he didn't get it but yeah so he was probably justifying that interference in the 96 one like oh, he got it's amazing the photo of you holding the trophy in 94 you just got this full clint eastwood sort of half smile like yeah i got gotcha. you <laughs> yeah at that stage in my career that was a huge moment because i had gotten second to kelly in my close decisions in the u.s championship like many years throughout my career so my my battle started with Kelly when I was twelve years old. Like he meant a hoonies, right? He was to, to like to like have uh, to deal with your whole life is was really gnarly. Um, and just like you know, we talked about the iconicness of you know Archie and Fletcher and those guys. Like, well, the iconicness that was created through the media for Slater was immeasurable. You know, like so you weren't just competing against a normal surfer you're competing like against the world basically did you did <laughs> so you always know you could smoke him i mean did you think i got you do you put me and you like in proper judging i will take you down every fucking time kelly slater is that the way you felt um i didn't feel that confident but i did feel that i can beat it i can beat you you know what i mean like i felt like it was a fair fight if it was fair judging you know, and 96 made me feel like I was fighting an unfair fight, you know, and that's what really, um, like, took took my motivation away, you know. And actually, I think it was 97, you know, like, we went on a whole trip with Derek Hind and stuff about, you know, like, there was, like, a, a moment of, like, a new tour, you know. Like, we were Derek, at that time, Derek was watching the whole tour closely, going to every event, writing about it, and, um yeah like we went on a trip to ireland and scotland with and uh that was, that was crazy because that was like the beginning of red bull too like now that i think back right it was like on a red bull bus and stuff and i was like what the hell is red bull <laughs> and uh yeah we were he was like had people in position and like like almost like another tour possibility at that point so describe that this describe the discussions with derek and uh because you, you obviously would have been very keen to uh, join a Rebel Tour, right? Oh, totally. I was helping him launch it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. to, so describe the machinations of it. How, what form would it have taken? Um, I forget the exact form, but it was much more, it was a much more progressive format. You know, like up until that, that, that Rebel Tour really like was the first time the ASP adapted the wording of their criteria and included the word progressive. Like it was like, it caused enough energy to create a change. It didn't have enough energy to really launch, but um, it created enough energy to cause a change in the format and the judging criteria. So we used after that they the ASP included progressive, the word progressive surfing in their criteria, which never existed before. So were you sounding at other surfers to join the tour? Excuse me? Were you sounding out other surfers to join the tour? Yeah. 
Totally. I was like pushing on him. I was pushing on Taj hard. <laughs> he was a little grom. He was just so afraid. He was looking at me like, no way, dude. <laughs> but, um, cause he was, you know, he was like the rad, you know, progressive surfer, you know, like when he first came on, he was young and, and progressive and, you know, ripping. And I was just like telling him like, Hey man, you got to push this because that's, that's what you're doing, you know? And, and that's the future and and uh yeah it was just a little gnarly for him i was you know like i look back and i was i was he was just afraid you know he just looked at me and just like dude there's no way i can stand next to you you're you know <laughs> so <laughs> but in the end i think it, it did something positive as far as you know like pushing the asp and to you know acknowledge that the sport has changed and and will change you know and and now look today you know like she's you got philippe and john and Italo, and these guys are doing incredible entertaining do feel, stuff do you feel the tour is good today though i mean do you think the tour we have today wsl iteration is this is no need for rebel tour we've got it more or less well in the sense that guys are getting rewarded for incredible surfing yes you know like they're they're definitely will always be inaccurate stuff in the judging just because just whatever but i think it's it's the best i've ever seen it you know as far as like guys getting rewarded and yes there are mistakes sometimes where you just go what but not as often you know like that happened a lot you know back in the day and um and actually, through doing the Red Bull Airborne series, I've actually got to spend, <laughs> and me and Graham Stapleberg were laughing our asses off because back in the day, like when he was like finding me and stuff and he was running the ASP, he had told me once like, hey, if you come work in the ASP, you know, for a couple of days, I'll lower your fine. And I was like, like no, no way, Graham, this and that. And, uh, and then I'm like hanging out with the head judge and the his right-hand man judging the we're just laughing like evolution's cool you know like we're just talking about evolution of the spirit you know and like for me to be hanging out with um the head judges and and judging airborne series was actually really cool and uh i feel like those guys they have a good uh they have a pretty good grasp on technical difficulty so i mean yeah, I think, you know, there could be some tweaks and stuff like that, but I think they're on the right path, you know. Does does Noah want a CT? I mean, is that Noah's dream? Yeah, Noah's psyched. He wants to go on the CT for sure. Like, he's, uh, it's definitely something that he wants to do on his own, on his own accord, you know, so. He's looking to cool enough for the kids like that to want to do it so I, I think they're doing a good job for me honestly for me I, I just think they would it would be cool if they just brought in more people on the webcast you know I think um it's just like listening to music you know like if you listen to the same stuff over and over you're going to want to hear something different you know so I think when they bring in like guest people and, and different different people to talk on the webcast I think that's the, like probably the coolest thing they could do 
Or they could just force Boss to be wasted the whole time. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> Tell us what he really thinks. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like I think sometimes like when they bring Barton on sometimes, I think he's really cool. He offers some really cool insight. And I've seen like a year or two ago, they had Tom Carroll on one of the Pipeline webcasts. And that was really cool, you know? So I think they're just if they like reached out, there's so much incredible knowledge out there that they could just bring in for splices and, you know. Would you be happy to do it? Would you hop into the webcast? Yeah, for sure. I would, you know, like, it's one thing to go in and, and intermittently do it. It's another thing to talk all day. I've, I've done a couple amateur webcasts before and talking all day is tough. It's like, it's a, it's a skill set that has to be acquired for sure. So, but, you know, like these 10, 15 minute intervals where guys are, you know, offering insights and, you know, like a, a fresh perspective on things. I think it's really cool, you know, and there's so many incredible characters out there and, and so much knowledge to be shared. I think uh, to me, like, that's the one thing I would probably suggest. But other than that, I think um, I think they're moving in the right direction for sure. What about it's interesting to see what they're going to do, like with all the new tour concepts and stuff oh i don't i mean i honestly don't see how it survives COVID though do you honestly as is sure? like yeah as is i don't see how it survives like i think it's going to yeah. come out radically different how does it survive well if, if they tra keep trying to keep everyone from being around each other it's tough you know they i mean not only that but just the amount of stops and everything on the ct i don't know how they do that yeah yeah i mean there's a lot of a lot of countries there yeah i don't know man this whole covid thing is uh definitely a massive curveball for the world so we'll see we'll see what happens here do you like the uh do you like the single day um tour decider concept uh personally for me i don't i think that leaves so much room for discrepancy i mean you can go out in the ocean and no matter who you are, you could just get skunked, you know, like <laughs> just sometimes you can't buy a wave, you know, like you've, you've heard that saying a million times, like I can't buy a wave out here and that can happen to anybody, you know, and for someone to hypothetically be way out in the lead because they have put together an incredible year and lose because the ocean went flat or, you know, some, X factor happened. I think that's a that's a tough one, you know, as a competitor. I was just thinking about it today, actually, and you know, like to me, if they're going to do that, they'd have to go like NBA style and be like, like best out of seven, you know, or best out of five, you know, where it's like you got to earn it. I think uh, you know, in a best out of at least five scenario, you earn it, you know. If, if you're leading the rankings and I'm coming up from fifth place and I want to take your world title, I should have to beat you three out of five times. Yeah, so that's a good, good idea too. Another idea is to have it so um, rather than have the top five be in that final day, it's only anyone who's within, say, 2,000 points of the, um, of the leader. Because then it's a genuine decider. But if you have somebody who's 10,000 points behind in fifth place, it doesn't really seem fair that they would be be up against the person who has just dominated the season. The other person's just been getting fifths and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. That's, that was my main point. It's like, yeah, that's a good idea too. You know, if you're, 
if you're in with your if you're within a point range of where you could actually decide it in one event then mm. you should be invited but yeah. if you're not you know like if you if you won the event and i got last and there's and you still don't pass me then it's tough to give that person a shot at the title <laughs> sure so so after uh, after the tour you um you moved into surf coaching how did that come about was it because you were just um working with the kids Nora and Coder, or were you employed by people to um help the kids um yeah it was it was a it was just like a, a it was a transitional time for me you know like i was moving away from being a professional surfer and figuring out you know what i was going to do you know and that's a that's a gnarly time for probably all pro athletes you know especially surfers because they you're not making the money to retire yourself for the rest of your life so it's definitely a, a transition and you know what what can you do what what options are there and for me it was really about um pursuing stuff that still enables a similar lifestyle you know still keeps me in the water and within the surf industry and uh not in a you know nine to five or working all day you know like full bore so um yeah sean hayes approached me about um talking to red bull and uh you know that was i hadn't done any coaching yet up to that point and went into Red Bull and they asked me, you know, asked me about ideas and this and that. And I just told them, you know, how I taught my kids, you know, on skateboards and trampolines and stuff like that. And the guy at the head performance guy at the time was Andy Walsh. And he was super cool, forward thinking guy. And he loved it. And basically they did, uh, they launched Project Air off of it. And that happened in Byron Bay and they set up a, uh, full bore skate ramp with the foam pit and trampoline and all this stuff. And, and that was really, um, what like the high performance center based a lot of their stuff off in Australia. Now I heard they have like a whole, you know, skate foam pit thing and all this stuff. So yeah. And then just from there, I started working with Red Bull and then started doing, um, I worked with a lot of their athletes intermittently. Like I did a lot of pro junior stuff in the beginning with like Kolohe and Evan Geiselman, Connor Coffin and uh, Cristobal. But it's funny, like all the guys we've worked with have been doing, you know, they've all done pretty well, you know, so it's been cool. Cause like we did a lot of international camps and stuff. And we, so we did like stuff with like Mateus Hurdy, who's, killing it now and wiggly when he was a grom so um, yeah it was cool i got to you know like i said it kept me in the mix kept me talking about stuff i actually knew about and uh yeah i got to still travel and and then i started working with carissa really closely which was cool um did like a lot of different camps with her on tube riding and airs and just kind of the whole spectrum which was cool because I got to go on surf trips, you know, and go surf and teach her and, and she was super psyched to learn. So it was fun. Could you teach anyone or do you need a real base level of, of competence in order to teach? I mean, could you, 
you teach, like if somebody gave you raw material and said, go this person, you got two weeks, a person who can surf, but has never been barreled or done an air, you got two weeks, they come out barreled and aired. Um, airs, no. Airs are really tricky. Barrels more than an air because, well, with Carissa, we were doing like the initial phase of barrels with her was just getting her in the tube. And so we, we did some step offs. So she was getting a lot of reps, you know, and just working with the feet, you know, like just shuff, just, just one thing in tube riding, shuffling the feet forward helps so much. It's so like if someone has access to barreling waves and they do, if they change this one, like if they have their foot on the tail pad normally when they ride a barrel and they move that foot above the tail pad, their two riding will get like 30% better instantly. So, I mean, the guys that, you know, the average surfers have the most to gain because they're doing stuff that they don't know they're doing. And like just one little thing can change, can help so much, you know? So, yeah, I mean, anyone, anyone can get better. You know, it's just, it's really just body awareness. You know, a lot of people have habits that they don't know of. And once you show them what they're doing, like most of the time people don't even know it. Like when they see it, they're like, whoa, I didn't know I did that. And you're like, yeah, if you do this instead of that, you're going to, you know, it helps tremendously. So what are those, what are those common mistakes that, you know, intermediate average surfers do all the time that you always see and go, fuck, if you did this, your life would be so much better. Um, well, the most common one with like blow tails and airs is, is the back shoulder falling back. Like that's like, that's just happens all the time. And it's basically because when your board leaves the water, it gains speed. And if your back arm's not way in front of you, it'll fall. It'll go back every time. And when your back arm goes back, you go back. So in, that, in like blow tails and airs, that's like the number one thing always. And it's just all about getting the back arm in front of you before, you before your tail releases. Because what happens is if you get it in front of you and your tail releases, your tail will catch up to your arm instead of leaving it behind. <laughs> So if you're not forward, and even if you're halfway, it'll go back because the tail gains speed so rapidly that it, it just separates everything. So on that, it's that. And then like on, uh, on just carves and cutbacks, it's waiting back. You know, like that one thing will, will help anybody. And that's basically bending your back leg more than your front leg. And that basically just puts the board like this. So you don't dig your rail and you get more leverage through your turn. And those, just those two things right there would, would help an average surfer get way better. Cause they're guaranteed like leaning over their front foot when they carve and digging their rail, you know, and they're just going, why did I dig my rail all the time? And so the weight back and the back shoulder are probably the two most common things. And what about, uh, what about speed control? Because a lot of average surfers will race out too far out in the face and won't be in the pocket. And uh, for the average surfer, it's hard to compute how in the pocket a, a good surfer does, surfs. So they rarely go probably more than a meter out on the face. Is that something? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, for most surfers, 
they don't enjoy that luxury because they're serving beach breaks, you know? So it's always just, you know, like you have to be on a point to really have to, you know, get yourself out of the pocket, you know, cause you have that, all that room to like go down the line, like, Oh, 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 oh I'm too far. <laughs> so, um, I think for like on the point breaks, that's probably something that happens, but, um, I think all in all people, you know, even if they're just outside of that meter range, they still can do it. But if they don't wait back then on their back leg, then they'll always kind of dig rail or get a weird kind of arm movement from it. Wow. And what about the, uh, the importance of a, uh, of, of, of the takeoff? Cause that, that sets you up for everything. And, uh, average surfers tend to hesitate on takeoffs and maybe not paddle fast enough and, and maybe take off a little bit on the shoulder rather than right in the, uh, right on the peak of the wave. Is that another thing that? Yeah. I mean, I, in, in different waves, it's like all different things, you know, like, so if you're surfing barreling waves, like it matters like tremendously, you know, whereas if you're surfing lowers, it doesn't really, it matters, but not that much, you know, cause it's not like so critical. And then in small waves, it matters a lot too, because you want to take off at an angle in small waves, you know, like the bottom of the wave and like small mushy waves is like the enemy, you know, like that's where you lose all your speed. You know, if you go to the bottom of a mushy wave and try to do a big bottom turn, you're, you're done, you know? So in small waves, you want to take off at an angle and get, get, stay in the middle of the wave high and then drop when you can. And that will give you a lot of extra speed. Cause that's like kind of the whole main goal of small waves is trying to find speed where there is none, you know? So you have to kind of stay high and more in the middle range of the waves. And then once you have speed drop and do your bottom turn, instead of trying to bottom turn straight away. And then in, in hollow waves, it's really critical, you know, like there's a, there's a line in the wave that you have to be under and ideally at an angle too. So, you know, you're, you're dropping in at an angle underneath, straight into the barrel instead of going straight and then missing the barrel and then trying to get in after. But like yeah, I mean, it's all important. <laughs> <laughs> it all matters, right? That's the cool thing about surfing. It's just, it just never ends, you know, like I was, I was surfing just recently, you know, and I was, all of a sudden I was on my back and then on, on the bottom, you know, just like, Oh no, it was Rockies. And, and I went to pull in on a wave and there's this little bump and at whitewater at the same time caught my shoulder and sent my head into the lip. And I was like doing a backflip in the barrel, just going, I'm freaking, is this for real? You know, like what kind of stuff catch you? You can never learn everything. You know, that's the, I think that's the coolest thing about it. It'll never be boring. What about the, what, what about the push and pull um, uh, technique when, when you do airs? I think that's something that confounds a lot of older surfers who are doing airs and they've never learned that, that waiting and unwaiting technique. It's rather just race, 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 hit it and fly it into the back of the wave. Can you describe that for a bit? Yeah. So, I mean, on most surfing turns, you're pushing, right? You're like pushing through your carve, you're pushing through an off the lip. But with an air, it's a, it's a pulling. It's funny because I've used, I've used that term before and um, airs are pulling maneuvers, you know, like, and when people like, when people, when they're bored, like flies away from them or something, it means they like pushed instead of pulled, you know, cause they're like going super fast and they want to do a sick air and they just overly excited and kind of 
just like this, once you leave the water, the slightest push of a toe will send your board like flying away from you. And yeah, it's very much a pulling maneuver where you're popping the lip and then you're pulling your legs, you're pulling everything together tight so that you're centered in the air. And, uh, and yeah, like it's a, a light pop and then it's a pull up, you know, instead of a push. Do you think the average, yeah. a- average surfer is riding the right boards? Or do you think, I mean, do you see just disastrous board choices everywhere? Um, I mean, for me, I feel like surfboards are so easy to ride now. I feel like I see average surfers, like if you just look at the lowers cam, you know, you'll just see guys just flying down the line and like doing turns. And I mean, I think, I think surfboards are super user-friendly now, you know, compared to when we started, like there's hand shapes, no computer, like you were lucky if you got one magic board in a year, you know, and, and you just baby that thing now now like almost every board i get works good you know it's the consistency and you have all these hybrid boards that are just super fun to ride you know like kind of low little lower entry a little bit of ear in the front and still turns good paddles good glides has a really good glide so i mean i think surfers are more stoked now than ever with the board choices they have (laughs) Are you hyper specific on your board? Do you write do you do you write a certain board all the time? And does it have to be five ten by eighteen three quarters by two and five sixteens, double concave through single? Um, I I definitely have a few models, lost models that I ride. You know, just that are my that just work really good. Uh, one of them is a Scorpion. It's like a probably like a relative of the Rocket. It's like a five eight by nineteen by two point one eight. Or 2.2 and uh it's just and just a really fun board um has great speed for me i'm older so i love like maximum speed and minimal movement <laughs> you know like i don't want to be like working for my speed i want to just i want i'd rather control speed than work for it so um it has just a low entry single concave within just a nice it's just a really just clean board and I can ride that board from like, you know, one foot to like six foot. And then I have like a 510 uh, Subscorcher 2 that I, I ride a lot that just works really good. Just, But then I have like a twin fin, like I have an MR twin fin, you know, that, I, that I've been riding here on some of the little point break days. It's super fun. And I've actually been, uh, last summer I learned how to foil too. So I've been doing that a little bit. And that, that's like, that's really fun. Do you foil with Paisel out there? I guess yeah, yeah. Last week I foiled with Paisel. <laughs> we got a little secret spot on the east side. It's just like fresh powder runs with no one around. It's just crazy. <laughs> oh, fresh powder runs. Is that really how it feels? To me, yeah. I mean, like I love. Like I started snowboarding when it started back in the day, and you know, powder was always my favorite. You know, that just real sure. floating feeling when you just kind of feel like you're flying that's the best way i describe foiling to people it's like snowboarding powder on water (laughs) damn it i've always hated foiling now you made me want to try it i believe me i'm like one of the worst like anti-gimmick guys and um i was surfing rockies at the end of the year last year it was just like barely breaking and i was 
and I was sitting there just waiting for a little wave to come in and and uh, I look up at Monster Mush and I see this guy kind of I knew he was foiling but I was, I was still just like what, what's going on over there and like within 15-20 seconds it was Nate Florence and he like flew by me at like probably 15 miles an hour or something like flying i was like just sitting there and he was on a swell and he just went whoosh, like right by me like soul arching with his hands behind his back and i was like fuck i gotta try it out <laughs> and uh like literally like 20 seconds later he was like down at um he was down at Ayukai, you know and i was just going whoa like that looks pretty sick and <laughs> For how weird and hard it is, like if you go like five or six times in a row, like each day, like you go every day for like six six days, you'll you'll get it. Is it it's, is it the same concept basically as snowboarding pow? I mean, is it just like weight back? It's it's all it's a little like once you get it, it is. But in the beginning, it's more like a indo board. It's like okay, it's basically like just like roll. It's all it's this constant front and back adaptation, you know, where the the wing wants to lift up. And as soon as you feel the wing lift, you push down okay. and, that, and that's your rhythm of like flow. And, it, and then once you're up gliding, you literally like, you're not surfing waves. You're just, you're, you're like snowboarding powder on, you're like, you catch a whitewater and then you ride the swell, <laughs> you know, like you're not even on the wave. Like you're just on a swell and just like gliding, floating. It's like, yeah, it's like powder runs fresh powder no lines nobody around it's becoming it's becoming almost socially acceptable because it's funny like you know you and Pizel sort of run off to the east side to, to do your thing did it feel like you guys had a dirty little secret like you know it's like the north american uh, man boy love association or something so you go there and you do your dirty little thing out of the east side is this how it felt <laughs> so no one would see totally yeah you come in and you look back at the water and it's like dribbling it's like barely breaking <laughs> white water and you're like were we just like bombing like powder run hills out there? Like, is that, is that for real? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, to, and to be like, have been in the ocean for so long and surf for so many years and to have a, a feeling like that, it's really cool. You know, like, um, yeah, it's just really interesting to get that feeling in the water. And, and then you, once you start doing like carbs and stuff, it's just like a, a powder carb. Like, you're just like, it's like a hundred, you can do like a 50 yard long, like rail hold where you're just like, like 10 times better than any carb at sunset you've ever done. <laughs> you've got me. Damn yeah. It. I didn't want to yeah, go. But that was, it's funny. I have talked to Paisel about it before. I was like, Hey, I, I, someday this is, this shit's going to blow up. Like when people actually like get over the fear, cause everyone's like really fearful of it, you know, which it's gnarly. I got whacked the other day and you can definitely hurt yourself if you're not careful. Could, could you, so, could you theoretically, I mean, could there be like Jones in the lineup and with foil? Is there enough, you can ride enough, nothing where everybody can just spread out and ride their tiny little inch bumps and have fun. That, that's the coolest thing about foiling. You can just go to the worst, waves ever where no one would ever want to surf and that's the best foiling waves so you know like i would say you know for me like i always foil where there's no one around you know i'd never foil like in a lineup or something you know or if i do i'll be like way inside on the side where no one is you know at the, 
basically at the end of the wave, <laughs> you know, like when the wave ends, that's when you want to catch it because then you're riding the swell. <laughs> how, often, how often will you foil um, compared to surfing? Um, well, I didn't foil all winter, you know, like when there's waves, I'm surfing, you know, like over here, but for the summer, like now that I'm not traveling as much, like I'm looking at it like powder runs all summer and barrels all winter, like not, not too bad. <laughs> Are you writing are you writing one of Pizel's screaming eagles named after a horrific sex act? What's that? Are you writing a screaming eagle, one of Pizel's screaming eagles, which is actually named after an, an horrific sex act? Oh jeez. Um I'm writing one of his boards. I don't know if it has a name or not, but it <laughs> it's is one a of the first eagle. demo boards. Pizel's <laughs> a secret pervert. <laughs> yeah, I can I can see that. <laughs> hey, um, back, back to regular surfing technique it's pretty obvious that unless you've learned the basics of surfing by the time you're 13 there ain't no chance in hell you're going to be better than mediocre you know I think so anyway but um, what ages do you see that you know can someone who started surfing at 15 or 16 ever be better than average or unless you had devoted your sort of young years to surfing you kind of screwed you'll always be stuck at a certain level yeah, it just, it just, it really just depends on the person's uh, balance and, you know, capabilities, you know what I mean? Like someone that's 20 that has crazy like soccer skills or something might learn a lot easier than someone that doesn't have any athletic abilities, you know what I mean? There's still basic coordinations involved and, uh, but yeah, I mean, if you go past a certain point in time, like you're not going to be pro, you know what I mean? But frick, average surfers have a lot of fun, you know what I mean? Like, well, no, we don't, man. We constant torture. Oh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think if you just just learning a cutback is fun, you know what I mean? So like, I don't know. I think, uh, well, shit. There's so many surfers in the water so there's definitely a lot of average surfers out there having fun because uh there's more surfers in the lineup than i've ever seen in my life is it possible to teach a um an average surfer 35 years old who's never done an air in his life to do a to do a reasonable sort of air yeah i'd say so we go, go to waco for sure but they don't turn the, they don't turn the wedge on for punters because um Tom Lochtefeld was, tell, I think, was telling us that someone, um, or someone was telling us that um, someone hit the head on the bottom and uh, they had to turn it off for the regulars. The air section? Hmm. So you have to have a private, private session to get the air section. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if, if you got a private uh, air section session, I think you definitely need to stick in air. In, one, in, in how many classes? One? Well, I mean, if you have, it depends how many attempts you get you know, and how, where the person's at, but it could potentially be one. I mean, it's such a sick setup, you know, it's just like, I think that wave alone has really like progressed the aerial surfing of a lot of kids. It's interesting because it's, it's the one pool that actually concentrated on airs rather than barrels. That wave garden's all about barrels. And Kelly's pool's about barrels. It doesn't really have an air section. But Waco, or, you know, I guess thanks to Shane for, for tweaking the buttons. Yeah became you know the ground zero for uh, progression yeah no i think it's definitely added a lot of value to a lot of a lot of kids you know and i mean just to have that ramp over and over is crazy 
you know, like you just don't get that in the ocean, you know, even if it's wedging a D-bar, like you may get just to catch a wave, you know, like the battle to catch a wave and then, you know, have everything to come together for that one section, like in one session on that air section at Waco, you probably get more attempts than you would in maybe years. It's funny because if, if, if you went to Waco and you had four consecutive days of sessions with the, with the ramp, you could, you could effectively um, fast forward your surfing by five years. For sure. And um, I, I, know you, I know you've got some um, Waypool stuff going on that you can't really talk about yet. And we'll talk about it sort of a later date. But um, where, do you, where, do you see, where do you see a little surfing world in uh, five years time? What's it going to look like? What's the landscape with pools and shit? Um, definitely the pools are going to be popping. You know what I mean? Like, to me, we're in the beginning of the ski resort industry, you know, like it's basically the similar sport, you know, like recreational lifestyle sport, you know, that people love, you know, and, and ski resorts are based around snow, you know, surf resorts are going to be just based around weather, you know, like they're making their own waves. So it's really just about finding the, the ideal weather locations and they're going to be popping up. I believe Palm Springs is quite a nice place for pools. What's that? Palm, Palm Springs is a nice place to swim. Yeah, I mean, they got what three, two or three going out there. So, like, um, yeah, you know, I think it's just the beginning of a massive industry. And eventually, I think it's going to help the surf industry because at all these venues, there'll be retail spaces created and, uh, you know, like a funner, experiential retail environment than just your average surf shop or Costco, you know? So I think it'll lend more opportunity to the surf industry, to people that work within the surf industry, um, across the board, media content, events, coaching, lifeguarding, all of the above. It's pretty, pretty fucking exciting. Be exciting to be a 15 year old kid or a 12 year old kid with all this in front of them, huh? Yeah, I mean, the opportunities are going to get crazy. <laughs> I mean, Waco alone is incredible. You know, like you said, like, you can go there for four days and get a major advancement on your skill set. Hey, so we're going to, um, we're going to tap out of this now, but before you go, yeah. I want you to, to describe for me the three finest pieces of surfing you've ever witnessed, three to one in order. In real life or video? Or just uh, period? No, just, just the three finest pieces of surfing. I mean, I know, you're, I know you're 30 and Akira was like one of the greatest moments of mankind. Nah. Uh, definitely like Twiggy's Barrel, uh, Jaws. That's one, that's one that stands out. That's just incredible. Like definitely one of the most incredible waves. The barrel, um, that recent barrel that Billy made at Jaws, like air dropping on a foam ball on a 10-0 and that barrel is crazy. And then, like, totally outside of Jaws, I'd say, I mean, gosh, there's so many more than three. That's, uh... What's the best piece of surfing that's you've really tough. What's the best thing you've ever seen? It's tough. There's so much. Like, John at Margaret's, you know, like, is just astronomical, you know? Like, the surfing he was doing during those events he won was crazy, you know, like in that sense you know jaws was crazy in that sense you know some of this it's like felipe's air 360 in in rio two years ago was this 
incredible in that sense. You know, like there's, there's, that's a, that's what I was telling you guys earlier that I think they're on the right track. You know, the things that are being done in the sport right now is just so incredible. And, and as a fan of surfing, it's so fun to watch. It's, it's funny because in the, in previous epochs, you had the tour, you had guys who went on the tour and a lot of the surfing was happening off the tour. But the best surfing, you now they've got Gabrielle and uh, Idolo and so on and Felipe, it's all happening on the tour, right? Yeah, and one of the other things was Matahi's way at freaking Keiki. Oh, what was that? should have been way for the winner. What's that? Oh, oh yeah, Matahi, Matahi, you're right, okay. You see that 12-footer he caught at Keiki? It's like, that's just ridiculous. Like, I, that was way for the winner for me, like, all day long. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Shane, it's been lovely to chat, man. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube